Hello, everyone, and welcome to this free episode of TF, and it's it is Riley. One. Yes. And Alice, you have been begging us to ask you about your sword. I have. Okay, this is unfair. I just happened to be holding a sword as we as we started the like pre-record for this. Yeah. Alice I, was just threatening you with a deadly weapon, Riley. Exactly. The exactly. I, I was just threatening you with this sword, and mm. you started asking me, like, what's the deal with this sword? And the deal with this sword is that it's it's a sword that a fan sent me. Oh, um, okay. Was it a Sicilian fan? I, I mean, this is the thing, I don't think it was meant as a threat because it has my name engraved on it in Russian. It's not a um, great threat because it's like it's giving you the weapon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, uh, I, I don't know if they engraved this themselves or if they just had it engraved, but it, it, it has... Uh, my name in in like Russian script and Sukhobliet on the other side of it, uh, <laughs> getting killed with the Sukhobliet sword. Yeah, exactly. So if you break in my house, you have to you have to confront the Sukhobliet sword, uh, which yeah. I just have. Uh, and yeah, I, someone should... someone asked me about this, and I was like, yeah, I was just holding this. You should put out a tweet call. and offer fifty grand to anyone who can kill you. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be at like such and such location. Yeah, meet me at the cenotaph or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Alice is going to be doing a boss rush uh, of the strongest people that listen to this show. No, it's twenty three Seinfeld. Jerry dates a trans woman, but can't understand why she has so many swords. <laughs> I mean, they should remake the Always Sunny, uh, like Mac dates a transsexual episode. Mm. Is the thing because it was not uh, like mean spirited by by any stretch mm. of the imagination. But I think our conception of the trans woman needs a bit of an update from even like the first mm. season of Always Sunny. You know, a few swords mm. in that. Oh yeah, they got swords, Jerry. They got them. <laughs> so, uh, I just want to Kramer welcome you all. With a massive pair of tits, <laughs> massive pair of tits, and a Buster sword. Uh, I just want to welcome you all to this episode of TF. Now that we're done the putzing around from the front, uh, I'd like mm. to con to continue with the putzing around of the first half and then the second half. Mm. Um, that is the traditional order of putzing in front, putzing in back. Yeah. So the second half today will be. Alice and I talking to returning guest Emiliano Molino about his ongoing investigation of the abuse of the um, migrant worker visa program by um, various uh, uh, sort of, you might say, unethical um, yeah. companies and so on. S serious man, serious topic. Mm. And in order to listen to it, you've got to get through some bullshit about my sword. That's right. <laughs> uh, however, first, if you, want to, if you want to do that, I want to suggest, what if... Here's the thing. The four of us, mm. what if we started writing MPs books for them? Because it seems like Ooh. they could just copy and paste them from anywhere now. Trash Future Oil Warehouse, SPAC, Bank, Ghostwriting Service. Yeah, we should do it, but they should all be like Mills and Boone romances. <laughs> you Liz don't Truss know Liz Truss's book isn't like that. Yeah, that's It's true. not out yet, it could be like that. I have never been more excited for a book. I will be queuing up dressed as Liz Truss. Uh, for the midnight release of yeah, that dress, book. Dress up as all your favorite characters from Liz Truss's yeah, book. I'm, I'm wearing a bathrobe to going by the Liz Truss book. Uh, no, no, uh, this is, in fact, uh, labor news. Uh, Rachel Reeves, putative uh, chancellor, has um, 
has been discovered by the FT that she just copied and pasted a bunch of her book on uh, the women who made modern economics from Wikipedia. Um, Not just no, Wikipedia. Like, no. The Oxford Dictionary defines economics as. <laughs> Wikipedia, The Guardian, uh, like uh, another MP, I believe. Uh, just widespread, widespread plagiarism. But you can't be copying and pasting from another MP, a book which was itself probably copy and pasted. You're going to get, like, book BSE. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think about this too, because, like, so many politicians write books. No one reads them. They exist mostly as a vehicle for, like, book, book launch parties in Westminster. And this, like, this can't be the only example. It would drive me insane, were that the case. This must be... Absolutely ubiquitous. Wait, hang on. I've just realised what the MP's book is. Do you remember when we came up with the idea of Riley to Riley, the direct Riley Reed podcast that's only <laughs> to be listened to by Riley Reed, made by Riley? Well, this is basically like MP to Riley, the book that will only be read by Riley. <laughs> They're just sending you like you start getting really conspiratorial about it. Like MPs are sending you like coded messages because they know you're mm. the only one who's going to read this. Yeah, what we yeah, need well, is for Riley Reed to become an MP and write a book, and then it will complete the circle, and we can all die. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Rachel Rachel Reeves interviewed about this. Said, "I'm the author of that book. I hold my hands up and said I should have done better. I take responsibility for everything that is in that book. But for me, what I wanted to do is bring together the stories of these women, and I guess you could say she brought them together from a variety of sources, such as Wikipedia via the Control C button." It's just really uh, it's just really funny that she's like doing this kind of performance of seriousness. That's her deal mm, now. She's like, mm. you know, serious fiscal responsibility MP. Uh yeah. and then for some reason she felt the need to sort of like have a book out to to reinforce that, you know? Mm. And it's, mm. it's why? Whose whose vote I, was depending on like whether or not Rachel Reeves had a book? It's a book that could have been blank because no one will read it except maybe. I mean, me I imagine it's point. more of like a it's more of like a PR attempt, right? So like the criticism mm. being made of her is that she like lacks charisma, is kind of boring, but also like is really not kind of, it's sort of more of the colder one of mm. like compared to Keir Starmer, which I yeah, think next, also- next to Keir Starmer, anyone looks like a charisma vacuum. I mean, that guy <laughs> is so charming. And so I imagine there's probably something related, related to that. Uh, or just the idea that like, well, if you want to project, if you want to like shows that someone is both like a progressive, but also very serious about the numbers and like, you know, thinks of themselves as like a part of a long line of, uh, of, of, of women economists, uh, who, who also said austerity, uh, actually was really good and we should do more of it. Um, that feels mm. like that's the only answer to this. Well, Keir doesn't have a book out, does he? I can't. He might, like, I, I want him to. I don't want him to write a serious, like, political biography. I want him mm. to do go the Vince Cable, Boris Johnson, Tom Watson route. I want him to write a thriller. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, the yeah. thing he is, he could I, write I, the Devil's Tune too. <laughs> he's he's so sort of like clearly. I think the reason why he hasn't written a book yet is because he's holding out for the you know elder statesman memoirs thing. Right mm. after after finishing his like you know five terms in Parliament, you know we build mm. a giant statue of him and he puts out, uh, the, I, puts out the memoirs. I reckon he's gonna do. I reckon he's gonna do like a sort of like Obama dreams of my father type of thing. Um, yes, or like please. one of those like donkey like, sanctuary from well, my mother. Well, because well, he talks a lot about his dad building tools and how you know this this informs his policy. But he never expands on that. Um, my other idea tools I had from my father. Uh, tools from my, the other idea I had for a book pitch could just be called the puddle. 
are drinking oh, drink, yeah, yeah, drinking yeah. from the puddle, the collective puddle of British society. Everyone Tonight, gets a sip. We drinking from the puddle. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll write like Keir Starmer the Keir Starmer cookbook. <gasps> yeah. That'd be good. That'd be really good. Yeah. All right, we're just at a pitch meeting now. That's the problem. <laughs> the, the, Keir, the Keir Starmer cookbook. I, I, I like Look. boiled rice with a bit of grated cheese on top. I think it's a, it's a good quick deal. <laughs> Keir Starmer, um, like Keir Starmer, young adult fiction series. Uh, that could be quite fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, Keir yeah. Starmer's self-help book. You know, twelve twelve rules for life from <laughs> Keir Starmer. Starmer, so, better, faster, stronger. The Keir Starmer story. <laughs> yeah, he 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 agree, he agrees that he agrees that you should make his, you make your bed every day, but not because it will make you uh, optimize you as an individual. Uh, because it will impress your wife, mm-hmm. and it will. So. Here is, I'm going to read the last line of the Rachel Reeves justification here. It says, and if I'm guilty of copying and pasting some facts about amazing women and turning it into a book that gets read, then I'm really proud about that. Which is, again, like, number one. <laughs> if plagiarism is a crime, then, <laughs> then lock, lock me, me up. up. <laughs> number one, these books don't matter. Number two, the people who care about, actually care about whether or not, like, these books that exist to not be read, but just exist so someone can have written a book is a homework She's police run- officer. <laughs> She's right, kind of about like how books are sort of treated now. Like the idea that like these books are just kind of like, you know, f- like props for like your Instagram posts and stuff. Like yeah. she's not, she's not like entirely wrong about that. And I will say in that vein, but I will buy uh, Rachel Reeves' book and I will sit strategically on the tube reading it in the hope that I do mm. appear on the Hot Guys Reading Books Instagram account. <laughs> uh, something that I've been trying to do for many, many years, and sadly, it's uh, a dream that is still yet to materialize. As I was reading Rachel Reeves' book, I neither nodded nor shook my head until I was sure what the prevailing opinion of the book would be. Because that is the correct neutral position in which to read a book, to go in with no preconceptions about what the book may contain, or whether or not it will be good. Very funny to be like, if I plagiarized a book, and if that's a crime, which I seem to think it is, then lock me up. So, I want to talk about Lumen Fitness. Mm. Welcome to the world's smartest fitness studio. I'm welcoming all of you and the listener, the world's smartest fitness studio. That, that seems you. like the, a low bar. Like the average, the average like intellectual level of any kind of fitness environment is not generally. And I say this as someone who goes to the gym a lot. It's not a place you go for the kind of intellectual uh, discussion. Mm. Have, have I talked about the, my local gym on on the show before? I don't believe so. Why not? Why not mm. dox yourself? Uh, so my a gym that I go to, it's called Legends. Uh, there are two uh, outposts of legends. Right. One in triangulating your position between legends, the Shalimar Kebab House, and the times we've said the full mailing address of the studio <laughs> live on air. I want to say the full mailing address of the studio live again because I want Canadians to send me Canadian sweets. I really miss Swedish berries. Just get um, a PO box. It's not that expensive. Plus, there's way fewer anthrax. Um, so, no, my gym is great. It's called Legends. There's two locations, one in Hackney, one in, in Haringey. And um, it's full of older Turkish men working out wearing like Gucci, fake Gucci polo shirts and jeans and pointed leather loafers. Just doing like sick. the nice. worst bicep curls you've ever seen really fast. Yeah, sick. Love it's that. awesome. And that, uh, that's like an intellectual hotbed. Yeah, so that's the world's smartest fitness studio. But Lumen Fitness in Dallas seems to think they've got it, um, uh, got it cornered. Uh, they say it's oh, intelligent. In inter- is it a place where you work out your head? It's intelligent, <laughs> interactive, and individualized, saying our smart fitness studio uses the latest advances in technology to deliver a one-of-a-kind immersive workout that changes daily and evolves over time. 
What it Mr. is, Mr. Oswald? What, you, what are you doing by that window? Isometric exercise. <laughs> <laughs> what you do practice you think? getting shot in the head to develop a Mithridates-style immunity. <laughs> <laughs> this is what paintball is, you know. And now people are too mm. powerful. Mm-hmm. So what they uh, are? Yeah, I love a game of paintball at the weekend. <laughs> uh, some of my friends, they had a group on. It was mostly ten-year-olds. We destroyed them. <laughs> If JFK had like lived long enough to do paintball, he would have been fine. Would have just bounced off. Yeah. Or he would have just maintained uh, like an airsoft guy level of situational awareness, and he would have always oh, yeah, clocked every have, threat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah if, exactly. If you know, if the CIA backed you know Cuban diaspora had access to paintball, they might have realized why the Bay of Pigs was such a strategically doomed operation. <laughs> <laughs> Seldom in a in a paintball match do you get the air support that you need from the US. <laughs> we're we're gonna I'm gonna talk a little more about Lumen Fitness. Uh, they have cutting edge tech. Our studio harnesses the power of artificial intelligence, digital displays, and object detection to keep every workout fresh and engaging. We uh, okay, great. We're gonna get the like AI hallucination thing where you're like, okay, th- great, bicep curls or whatever. How many reps of these should I do and how many mm. sets? And it's like, geez, uh twenty seven thousand. Yeah. Um, How many fingers do you have? Let's start with that. Yeah, yeah. It says, says, we also automatically track your performance from reps and range of motion to equipment type and weight, and progress equals rewards. You can earn Lumen coin, which I checked is not a cryptocurrency. Uh, throughout so each points. class, fucking everyone yes, does this. Like my, my the app that like opens the door to my chain gym does that. You know, maybe not mm-hmm. in as granular detail, but since I never use it, because what am I going to do? Like get a free sack of protein powder every three months? It's mm. like it's, I don't care, and I wouldn't care more if it was more personalized. Well, it allows you to. Um... It allows you to like gift trial memberships or choose your favorite station in an upcoming class. So they're using airline booking logic, where you have to if you want an extra leg room spin uh, spin cycle, you have to pay more. But so I just far, I just I just want girl gym. I want to go to the thing, do an hour and a half of pure cardio. No one is allowed to talk to me. The air conditioning is down to like minus twenty degrees, and then I leave. <laughs> That's it. That's all I want from a gym. That or the Turkish guys. Well, so so far, all I've described is a gym that claims to do some technology and has a points program. Here's the part that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, literally, yeah. This is from like a a like Dallas tech scene blog. Says inside Lumen Fitness, every detail has been thought of to offer a unique experience. But Chloe, Rex, Emma, and Ethan are not the usual instructors you would find in a gym because they aren't even human. They are virtual I was coaches. Say, Rex sounds like a dog. Yeah, Rex. Yeah. <laughs> because one of them is no also saying a German shepherd can't be a personal trainer. Not, not even human comes quite close I mean, to the describing bullies, a lot of the people say, who work say, in the gym. Say what you will about the XL bullies. Like, their, their, their muscle mass is evident. <laughs> I would trust an XL bully to yeah. train me yeah, over, yeah, yeah. over the, a the, human. The new gym uh, is is we're just gonna like leash a bunch of XL bullies behind the treadmills um. on a chain that's like just about long enough to take a chunk out of your heel if you're not like going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, uh, these are virtual coaches ready to guide members through every movement by combining AI, motion tracking, and object detection. Lumen is designed to get deliver a great full body workout while members engage in a mission based game such as filling a virtual cylinder with balls. <sighs> I it was my favorite game. <laughs> can I can I not play like Hearts of Iron or something? No, I mean the thing is right. This is a terrible way to to like prevent injuries or whatever. 
Uh, it like it, it barely even works for Amazon, and now we're applying that horror that horrifying surveillance tech to your gym as well, uh, mm-hmm. where you know you lifting and stacking things for fun will also get the kind of like time on target stuff. Yeah, Uber mm-hmm. Butler's going undercover at my gym. He's pretending <laughs> to be Uber an ex bully, disguised as a Turkish as a Turkish guy wearing like Gucci loafers. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same hair dye, but then just with the jeans <laughs> and the loafers. Yeah, just just spraying the same like brown hair dye just like over the like upper lip and chest. You know. Mm. So once members arrive for a workout, they're given an opportunity to pick their AI coach, which depends on whether they feel more motivated by a male or female voice, or a stricter or more cheerful or laid back demeanor. Or they can switch okay, their coach horny now. Yeah, now now I'm sort of back in the room. If you're telling me I can have an extremely strict female coach, this is you know without joining a kind of Eastern Bloc gymnastics program, ideal. Mm. So the white, if you want to actually imagine it. It's that every single person, instead of having going to machines you go through, it's you stand in front of an LED screen on a wall, like a cooler screen screen, um, mm, cool. which, have, which are full of sensors that are basically spying on you the whole time. Um, and all of the like dumbbells and medicine balls and skipping ropes also have sensors in them. Um, and so essentially, the, if the AI doesn't think you completed your movement properly, it doesn't go high enough, it doesn't count it as completed, which again... I don't know if we want to necessarily give that to uh, ChatGPT. This is just, just techno gym. They had this in like 2000. They had those fucking electric machines where you put the key in them and then it had like how many reps in the weight programmed into it. And then it like did a motion tracking thing on your rep to see, but just like with a normal basic computer. Like this is not, what is the value add here supposedly? AI. Yeah, it's that the thing will talk to you as this very. You can turn up the strictness on your woman. Essentially, I'd love to turn up the strictness on my woman. Mm. Uh, so the studio's immersive environment is scheduled to change every six weeks. Like coming home from the pub after a few pints. Whoa. Nineteen seventies working men's club podcast. You know. <laughs> so the the I see CEO what I'm trying to work out to turn it down. Am I right, lads? <laughs> the, the former CEO Brandon Bean. Was. <laughs> yeah, she branded on my bean till I till I increase my strictness level. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Brendan Bean said that uh, adding ecosystems called neon space or graffiti alley will keep the surroundings fresh. The well, ecosystem will be generated much by AI. Less criminal brother. <laughs> that's that's some real like city authentic shit right there. Or you know simulacrum and simulacrum to be like, oh, you want like a like a kind of like a rough boxing gym experience, but you're too much of a pussy yuppie to go to one, or even one of the ones that like deliberately tries to replicate that aesthetic in a sort of gentrified way fine push a button we'll play some like you know grunting ambience into your into your airpods uh and you know the the guy will yell at you yeah criminal <laughs> uh, graffiti alley was eventually prosecuted by the new iraqi government but received only a fixed penalty notice <laughs> but yeah that's look that's the that's the thing right is they're saying hey we're the business model here actually is we want to have a gym, we want to be gym owners but we don't want to employ anybody so we just want a computer that's going to replicate that experience but again what you what do you end up with is you end up with essentially a slightly more advanced version of just do, working out with a youtube video but that you pay for like it's like yeah, so many things so many things in like the 
it's a post a post COVID, but as more things start to want to replace themselves with AI, the more the fewer steps you are between just paying for different types of YouTube video or Skype call delivered to you in an elaborate way. Yeah, but also, it's a, it's a whole other little uh, profession turned into something that you have to be self-employed and do it as one of five side hustles, yeah. and then you get replaced by an AI anyway. This is this is just gimmick marketing because this is just a pure gym with like a, a YouTube video attached. Like, because most mm. gyms that you go to now, barely anyone works there anyway. Um, and like, unless you pay for personal training, no one is going to come and like help you with your mm. workout. That, but you, mm-hmm. but there's like a minimum number of people that you have to have working at a gym in case someone you know, like drops a fucking 100, 100 kilo barbell on their neck. So you can't get rid of the staff at the gym anyway, below the level that every gym already has. And no one expects staff to help them with the workout at the gym because they already don't. So this is just like a, a sort of a gimmick that appeals to guys called like Brendan Bean. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, time was you could sustain yourself on entirely a career of personal training like fifth place in bodybuilding competitions and some light steroid dealing. And now, you know, you can't do that anymore. And it's fucked the economy. Now you have to have a podcast that unites all of those things. About business success, ironically. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, To sell uh, fucking, uh, like, you know, supplements that are 90% magnesium. mm. You're going to become very flammable. It, it is true that reflection, right? That the jobs that are being that are most in danger of being automated, or that people are most keen to automate, are the ones that were already sort of ninety nine percent of the way there. That were already sort of so abstract. Um, mm. You know, uh, Bean said we liken it to being more of, a, of an airline attendant than an actual coach. Um, but I would say I well, would prefer to have peanuts? an actual coach. Also, airline attendants do like way more work than, <laughs> than personal trainers do. Yeah, for example, an airline attendant will come over and tell you that they've run out of the chicken because everyone has ordered that, and all they've got left is the fish because obviously no one has ordered that because no one would order fish on a plane. But nonetheless, they had exactly fifty percent of each meal. Mm-hmm. I had fish on a plane yes. once. It was not a good. It was not a good choice. That mm. plus, like, evacuating you from the plane if it's on fire. It's a real sort of spectrum there, you know? It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, the, it's like the joke, you know, my dentist can do it all from a simple cleaning to identifying my charred remains. So too with the airline <laughs> attendants. Like, you can, she can throw me a package of peanuts and also, like, evacuate me from a fire. I'm, mm. I'm, looking, at, like, some of the, I'm looking at some of the pictures of Lumen at the moment, and, like, I, I find it really difficult to describe in the sense that it feels like this is kind of, it's, this isn't just a sort of situation of like, we, we want to like automate, um, we want to like create like a smart coach to automate and like, you know, get rid of like the personal trainer. It changes the whole dynamic of what a gym actually is and what, and like this trajectory has been happening for a long time. I would argue that a lot of it is sort of like, you know, the, the death of like community gyms, the death of like accessible, um, you know, pretty cheap gyms in like, you know, cities and towns and stuff. Um, it was, you know, the trajectory was always sort of heading towards there where it was like, well, if you can only afford a gym, if you're like, you know, fairly, if you have disposable income effectively, then these gyms are designed to sort of like optimize towards you. And perhaps before, you know, these were in the forms of like particular kinds of luxuries, but in absence of those types of luxuries, I mean, I I don't know whether I've ever told the story on any of the pods about, um, I, I went, I, I, I very briefly had a membership to like a David Lloyd gym, which is like sort of, sort of like on the upper middle tier of oh, like yeah, British classic gyms. Classic law. Um, it's not, it's not that classic, God. But it was just like, you know, I was, I was really, I, I thought that like after going to my shitty gym, like you know, a nice one would sort of have more resources, would have like you know more, you know, 
barbells and stuff like that. It had some of those things, but it was actually just like very, very poorly managed, partly because they were relinquishing so much stuff to like the various forms of technology, like, you know, not AI technologies, but automated technologies they were trying out. They put a bunch of um, uh, personal trainers on like very like crappy contracts and basically made them cleaners, um, you know, on the basis mm-hmm. that like, you know, if you want to like train your kind of, you know, dwindling client roster here, um, you also have to like clean up the gym uh, afterwards and you also don't, and you can't ask for any money from that and stuff. This feels like an extension of that, but it feels like it's one that kind of heads towards, okay, like, you know, working out is not really about, you know, the, the idea of the community gym is gone. You know, you don't, you know, you're not working out for like, you know, to be a better member of society or to like be more functional as a member of society. You are doing this primarily for a very specific kind of individuation, very specific kind of optimate, like optimizing. Um, yeah, because your hobbies are women slash gym. But to be to be on the like hot boys reading books Instagram, you know. Yeah, I, I'm on their website, and there are three three points have leapt out at me immediately. First of all, they have an app which you can track your fitness on, which I love. Yeah. Second of all, their introductory offer, like a discount for membership, is you get seven days for twenty five dollars, which works out at a hundred dollars a month. So my question is, how the fuck much does this normally cost? <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? They say this is from this is from an article. They say this is Bean says from day one, Lumen Fitness was designed with two primary customers in mind: the end user who deserves a motivating and fun fran- fitness experience, and the franchise owner who wants to play a pivotal role in transforming how fitness and technology coexist. It's time for individuals and entrepreneurs alike to embrace a new era of fitness, specifically citing its high-tech, low-labor model. Uh, so- oh, yeah, because franchising was the next thing I was going to bring up. We could open one of these. We could convert <laughs> the Trash Future Studio into a Lumen Fitness. <laughs> Just a punch. Uh, we we're going downstairs to record. Upstairs, there's a bunch of like grunting yuppies with AirPods in. Yeah, the Patreon <laughs> is now a hundred dollars a month for membership of the TFG. I, I, I feel like I feel like Jim with Podcast Studio actually is quite a good business model for like at, at yeah, this time to happen. Yeah, it's, um, I mean one of those is going to yeah, be because then the the TikTok Jim guys can make their <laughs> podcast. <laughs> if Brewdog fucking well, has a podcast studio, then yeah, yeah, yeah. You you know you work out seven hours. In, or however long you have to work out in order to, you know, look like that, and then you r- spend the like remaining hour in the gym doing your podcast about business success <laughs> and masculinity. No, you spend you spend you spend the remaining hour like complaining that women don't appreciate how much time you spend at the gym creating that body that looks like fat. Yeah, if you if you like if you go into the app and you break down the time that you're actually spending, it's like four hours Instagram selfies. Four hours, like well, like three hours complaining about women. One hour podcasting, and then in between there, there's maybe like a bicep curl. So me and Tom have become obsessed with this guy on TikTok who calls himself Jim Skin, who is from Brentwood in Essex, and who is a white man, but who's had so much plastic surgery he looks like the Turkish Chad meme. And uh, <laughs> okay, he's like a kind of he he does the he did a TikTok once where he listed his hobbies as women slash gym. Although I saw a recent one where he described his hobbies simply as women. So I'm not sure what's happened to the gym. But um, I saw a video from him like yesterday where he's talking about how he is now running his own agency for people on TikTok to help them succeed, quote unquote. And he's filming himself walking down the street in Brentwood going like, so if you're big on TikTok, you want to take your content to the next level, talk to me, we can work together. And as he's saying this, he's walking into a kebab shop in Brentwood and he breaks off mid-sentence to go, cheers for the chicken shish manoush. (laughs) And just like sits down and just starts eating a kebab, which is like, so he must have gone in there before and like ordered the kebab and said, I'm just going to film a TikTok walking down the street and I'm going to come in and smoothly sit down and eat my kebab. 
And they're Beautiful. trying to put that guy, they're trying to replace that weirdo with a computer, which I think fundamentally we can yeah. agree will never work. No, no, no one, no one that creative could ever be AI'd. Mm. <laughs> However, all right, I think that's pretty good for the first half. Um, but now it's time for a jarring shift in tone. Uh, well, Alice and I interview Emiliano Molino about abuse of the farmworker visa program. See you in a second, people. Bye. Bye. Hello, everyone. Joining us from the first half. It is the second half where... A traditional order of halves. Yep. No no jumping from first half to third half for us. Uh, We recorded these so far apart, I may have gone into the first half uh, with the same joke. So I apologize if I've done that. (laughs) Uh, We are delighted to welcome back uh, a now returning champion guest. It is the Bureau of Investigative Journalism's Emiliano Molino. Emiliano, how you doing? I am doing well, trying to stay sane as mm. everything goes to shit. Mm. All we can do, you know? All we can do, yeah. Now, last time we talked, uh, we talked about an in-depth investigation that you've been doing for a while on the abuses of... Um, the mi- temporary migrant labor visa program uh, by, uh, if not farms, then staffing agencies working with farms in the whole sector. And just a little bit of a recap, as I understand it, you can correct me if I'm wrong. These visas that um, that sort of um, uh, like migrant uh, farm laborers receive, the farm, the National Union of Farmers, which isn't actually a union, it's a trade organization. Um, needs huge amounts of cheap, easily exploitable labor. And the, um, the visa is very tenuous, which means you can get kicked off of it and sent back home very quickly. Um, and it contains very few protections against being exploited. And the organizations that are supposed to guard workers from being exploited by staffing agencies, um, they fall between a lot of cracks. And so we end up with people coming from other countries, finding themselves in impossible to pay off indentures, living in moldy caravans, um, trapped for you know sometimes you know, days at a time without food or heat because they might catch COVID and so on and so on. Have I missed something? I mean, you pretty much summed it up. There's no point for me to do this interview now. Uh, you, can just, you can just go on to the rest of your podcast. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've, you've pretty much uh, summed it up. I mean, I think it's important to, I mean, there's always been problems in agriculture. Agriculture has always been a high risk sector for exploitation, for modern slavery and for all these things. But we haven't always had this visa. So the seasonal worker visa was created, was launched in 2019. Uh, off the back of, you know, as, as, as Brexit was kicking off, uh, because there was this fear that the already existing shortages in the agriculture sector would only get be made worse by Brexit. And so it started off as a pilot, 2,500 visas, and it's just ballooned over the years. This year uh, could be as many as 55,000 visas being issued. Wow. Uh, and, from, and from the get-go, uh, all the you know, main human rights, labor rights organizations were saying, this is the way you've set this up is a disaster. It's going to be a recipe for exploitation. Uh, because you know workers are tied to these recruiters. There's only this year around six recruiters for the uh, agriculture visa, um, and they're tied to them. So these guys decide whether they work, where they work. They they sort of decide a lot of things. They have a lot of power, uh, and they also decide what happens with their visas. These guys can, to some extent, revoke workers' visas. 
Um, so they have tremendous power. And, you know, workers are living on the farms where they work. Workers, you know, don't speak the language. So all these circumstances come together to make workers incredibly vulnerable to exploitation. And what we have found through our reporting, we've now been, it's almost now two years since I started looking into this area, is that, in fact, it plays out that way. Workers end up getting exploited quite significantly. Workers have very few people to turn to, uh, if any at all, and very few mechanisms to try to get any kind of protection. And as we uh, discovered in this most recent investigation, even when the Home Office was going in and doing just very few farm inspections and workers were raising complaints with them, raising issues with them, the Home Office did not investigate any of the complaints raised by workers. And like some really serious things that workers were saying, the Home Office did not investigate and did not sort of find any solution for these workers, didn't, didn't resolve any of the issues they were facing. Mm. And you, um, in the most recent piece, actually, that uh, quite a bit has, um, I'd say, come up since we last spoke to you a few months ago, um, that there are, you've cited documents obtained through freedom of information requests, s- documenting specifically exactly how workers are being exploited. Um, you know, and that the the end result of this is um, Robert Jenrick, who was at the time uh, in charge of, of immigration, said that there were no plans to publish any reviews of the scheme as they were, quote, of limited value, um, saying earlier commitments to ensuring the scheme protected migrant workers from modern slavery in no way committed the Home Office to producing ongoing reports in perpetuity, as though producing a report on a program that was causing some of the you know the issues that you bring up you know people confined to caravans people being having their wages garnished people being essentially like bullied and threatened by gangmasters right as though these to simply even look into this would be some kind of onerous uh, health and safety culture bureaucratic red tapeism exactly right. yeah i mean there was we should say that also like Jenrick was saying this. There's a, a number of uh, NGOs that were writing to Jenrick, saying, uh, "Can you, uh, you know, can you please do this review of the scheme?" In fact, uh, the review had been promised by the government. They said they would do it in response to uh, the Independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration. The sort of immigration policy watchdog had said, "You know, this scheme is high risk. We've seen a lot of problems with this scheme. You should publish a review, and you should also a number of other recommendations that he made. You should do these things." Now, just to clarify. The independent chief inspector of borders and immigration who asked the government to do this review, we're not talking about some communist here. He is the former head of the military police, right? Wow. And even yeah. and even he's saying that he's incredibly frustrated with the government because they don't respond to his um, to his they, they don't they don't you know follow his recommendations even when they agree to them they might be slow and not fully implement them. This kind of like legalism Tory versus the kind of like emergency stopgap uh, kind of visa program that we've just like forced through. Yeah, I mean, what you find is that there's like a lot of, let's say, like senior civil servants who, again, we're not talking about radicals here, but for example, the former independent anti-slavery commissioner, she was a former senior cop. Even she is highly critical of the government now. She actually quit her post because of the government's immigration policy. So even those kinds of people... Uh, you know, civil senior civil servants from a law enforcement and military background find this government incredibly frustrating to deal with, find this government is incredibly cruel to immigrants and is not putting in any safeguards. But, you know, going back to our findings, like you said, we um, we put an FOI request into the government for these inspection reports. We spent five months back and forth appealing the FOIs, going to the information commissioner. They, they, the government didn't really want us to have these reports. One of the incredible things in, in their response, we ended up getting the reports, but we didn't get the farm names. Um, oh, okay, perfect. Is- Th- this farm has been voiced <laughs> by an actor. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It was it was blacked out. It was in the shadows. Um, you know. Um but he put the SAS eye bar across the entire field. <laughs> exactly. That's it. So um and the gov- the home office's reason for not giving us the name of the farms was that they said it would likely discourage workers from going to these farms. So all these farms, you know, we had some of the farms, like 80% of workers were making complaints about wage theft, about bullying, about discrimination. And the home office says, we can't name those farms because, well, if we name them, my God, people might not go to them. And we are an enabler of the agriculture system. Um, so yeah, they did not want to be transparent about this. They tried to stop us from having this information. And, and what the reports reveal are just, you know, some quite extensive levels of abuse, of mistreatment. I mean, one Ukrainian woman told inspectors, uh, so the, the, the reports cover 2021 and 2022. Uh, so this was during COVID. One Ukrainian woman uh, had COVID. She was in a farm. Um, she was confined to her, her caravan during this time, and they didn't provide her with any medical uh, support or any food. She said she was starving throughout the 11 days that she was isolating in her caravan, and she got no help from her recruiter. Um, there was another they, guy. They just like walled her up, like fucking Edgar Allan Poe. That's like that's it. That's it. And 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 you couldn't even hear the heart beating. Um, and um, and you know another guy pulled his own tooth because he was denied dental care. Um, you know, in another farm, uh, you know, we had dozens of people that were complaining in this farm and in, in this report about uh, mistreatment. Uh, one of the workers said that uh, the manager. Uh, shouted, and I quote here, I'm a pure-blooded English woman. I will stay to live here and you will go back to your poor countries. That's actually a line that really leapt out at me from from the reporting, which is, you know, we talk about, you know, where's the enforcement, where's the enforcement, where's the enforcement? And I think we are thinking about it in, or, or to ask, excuse me, to ask those questions, where's the enforcement? And we're thinking about it like those um, inspector generals like these people who are wondering why this scheme seems to not be complying with the laws. However, what we're not, what, but this, if you like, that's looking at the scheme based on its fig leaf, right? If you look at the scheme based on what it's actually doing, then the enforcement is that woman. The enforcement is that woman who keeps the workers threatened, who reminds them constantly of their precarity, and who is who has been sort of given a kind of racial and ethnic puff up by, you know, a combination of uh, the, the right wing press and Facebook groups, you know? Yeah, I mean, she, she yeah. talks like GB News or like a Facebook post, which is in itself, I think, really revealing. Yeah, like this is if you want to this way, why we come back to like, well, what what purpose does stuff like culture war actually serve? The purpose culture war actually serves isn't just a distraction from other things. The purpose culture war actually serves is to create a very useful us and them between a one favored section of the of like of, of people who are like working on farms, say and to create a kind of divine or ethnic or genetic or whatever mandate for the hierarchies that it intends to enforce. And so when I and, and so I keep thinking and, and since I've read this article I've I've been thinking for a few days about this woman who would have been so consumed by sort of spite smugness and rage at the same time as to shout the kind of thing that would, let's say, in a li- proper, like, quote-unquote liberal, not as a like, big L liberal, but a 
a liberally managed system in as much as we live in a basically a kind of like neoliberal state. You know what I mean? The kinds of things that are supposed to be excluded from that. And I think it goes Mm. to show sort of how thin and powerless those liberal enforcement mechanisms are on what is essentially a series of improvisations designed to get hyper-exploitable foreign workers in so that they can then be uh, unpaid and shipped off. And and that system needs its shock troops. And that shock troop is that that screaming woman who I cannot stop imagining. I mean, the thing is that there is, you get a sense that there is a very real environment of impunity, Mm. right? There is, there is, because workers can only be here for six months, right? Going like the normal mechanisms to enforce your rights. And let's be honest, in the UK, you have very weak mechanisms to enforce your employment rights. It is pretty easy to exploit somebody because, first of all, the statutory agencies that are supposed to protect you are underfunded or ineffective, right? Like, like we showed here, the inspections did not result in any investigations. The allegations did not result in any investigations. The Gang Masters and Labor Abuse Authority, the body that's supposed to be doing enforcement in agriculture and in modern slavery issues, their budget this year or the last year they published accounts was six million, was six million, well, not their budget, sorry, their home office funding was six million pounds, which is less than what the home office spends on stationery and printing and publishing, mm. right? So they spend more mm. on pens and paper than they do on enforcing, on this body that's supposed to enforce modern slavery. And then you go to the employment tribunals, which is mostly what you're being eventually you're told to do. But employment tribunals, it'll take you a year, two years to get any result out of an employment tribunal. So for a worker who's here for six months, it's not an avenue. It's not an avenue you can realistically take, especially also if you don't have, uh, you know, you don't speak the language, you're very unlikely to be in a union. Um, mm-hmm. And there is no legal aid. There's pretty much no legal aid for employment. There's virtually no legal aid for employment since obviously since Cameron and the reforms on legal aid all these years ago. So there is really what you're going to do. You're going to go without speaking English to self-represent in an employment tribunal against your very rich uh, uh, farm employer. It's, it's impossible. So there is this environment of complete impunity. And then we also saw it. So we also, um, we also besides looking at the reports, we also uh, spoke to some workers who were working this year. So the reports covered 21 and 22. And we wanted to see if these problems, these problems of lack of enforcement, these problems of exploitation were still happening this year. So we spoke to a group of Latin American workers who were working at this farm called Haygrove, which is in, in Herefordshire on the border, some of it on the border with, with Wales. And things got so bad for this group of, of workers, many of them from Latin America, that they ended up taking, going on a wildcat strike. Now imagine being in a, things getting so bad for you. You're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, you don't have any union support, but things are so bad that you go on a, on a wildcat strike. Imagine how bad things have to get for you to go on a wildcat strike in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. So if I, I have some of your uh, writing on the wildcat strikes. I'd like to focus on that uh, for a little while. Uh, you say, nearly 90 Chileans, Peruvians, and Bolivians joined the unofficial strike at Haygrove for three days. Of them, 30 continued for nearly a week. Isolated in the British countryside, far from home and with visas in jeopardy, jeopardy many eventually went back to work without having secured their demands, and dozens of workers have since then left the farm. Each worker is now being charged the true value of their plane tickets, but other conditions have barely improved. Now, referring to the true value of the plane ticket, that is a practice of travel agencies to say overcharge workers for plane tickets that they then have to pay back. Um, so you okay, so we're just case, doing like the, indentures then. Yeah, in this case, the farm paid for the original flights and then asked the workers to pay it back. Mm-hmm. And initially, the workers were being asked to pay 1,500 pounds each, 
which would be deductions of around 250 pounds per week. Um, the farm would guarantee only 32 hours a week, which would put you put your earnings at about just over 260, which means that if you were earning the hours the farm guaranteed, and then you had to also pay back the plane ticket, you would end up having only like 16 pounds a week after the deductions for rent and other things that the farm also makes. I mean, that's reprehensible. It's, it's all reprehensible. And, and I guess my question is like... <sighs> We spoke to you about this before, and you know it was sort of much the same. And uh, there seemed very little hope for any of this improving. Um, is that still your view? And you know what possibly can be done about this? Oh God. Okay. So, but can I get back? Can I get back to that in a, in a yeah, sec? Because yeah, I want to mention something about the. Can I mention? Want to mention something before Go on on the strike as well, which is linked to the impunity point. And then actually, I'll, I'll get onto your question, Alice. So these workers, actually, obviously, like they were quite well organized. They managed to organize their own wildcat strike. Things got you know really bad for them. And they're also quite smart because they recorded quite a bit of what went on. Mm. One of the things they recorded was their recruiter in Chile, who went, who, when they went to recruit them in Chile, the recruiter in Chile was promising that they would earn uh, the equivalent at the time of between like 400 and 500 pounds a week. And like I mentioned, that wasn't happening. They weren't earning 400 to 500 pounds a week. Obviously, that's a pretty enticing offer. The mm. other thing they recorded was when one of these... Uh, you know, these uh, scheme operators, these recruiters that are licensed by the government to effectively recruit people on the scheme, sponsor visas, and and, and in a way also work like semi-enforcers of the rules of the scheme, even though in practice, the enforcement is very poor. So during the strike, one of these, one of the, the managing directors of, of one of these recruiters called Fruitful Jobs um, went down to the farm during the strike and effectively threatened the workers, told them that if they continued to strike, their visas would be revoked. Uh, they would be revoking them the next day. Um, and uh, at one point uh, during this conversation where he's telling the workers, well, if, if you continue striking, we'll, we'll revoke your visas. He also, uh, there's a woman that's complaining about her working conditions, what's happened to her. And he interrupts her and says, uh, do you want to go home? Shush then. Um, and other, other, other bits of that kind of behavior. It's so also the guy who's supposed to be ensuring that the rules are being followed is also threatening people with revoking their visas and also being quite, well, how would you describe that behavior? Telling a woman, do you want to go home? Shush then. Yeah, it's well, abusive. What, how, no, no question. And, and I, I think the thing is like, um, the veneer of like British tweeness over this, of it being called like fruitful jobs or whatever, is just like that much more aggravating to me. You sent me the um uh, the transcript of a of a select committee where this same guy and a couple of others from from recruiters uh, sort of testified in front of, and basically like there was no questioning involved. Everyone uh, on that select committee was sort of like. Very content to let these guys pat themselves on the back and go, yeah, no, we're we're a, you know a good example of like a self-regulating industry. Mm. Yeah, and they said that only one percent of workers complain, uh, and then obviously as we find from these from these inspection reports, obviously the number is much higher. We 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 saw around a hundred workers raising welfare issues with the Home Office, or sorry, hundred hundreds of workers raising welfare issues with the Home Office, and it was about nearly half, forty four percent of all the workers that were interviewed raising some kind of welfare issue. So clearly wow. the issue is much higher than one either. It's higher. They're getting more than one percent of complaints about exploitation, or uh, not all workers feel confident or comfortable reporting these things to their uh, scheme operator. Because obviously, as we've seen, some scheme operators will threaten with revoking your visa if you go on strike. Mm. Yeah, and so some of these, you know, that one of the people that you cite as as making that um, sort of threat is one of the managing the managing director of, as you mentioned, Alice Fruitful Jobs. 
this guy Justin Emery. Um, and you know the workers say we the workers told him, and again this is from your um, uh, uh, from your article. It says workers at Haygrove had told Emery that they were scared of supervisors at the farm. They told the bureau, this is you guys, that they were not given water throughout the day and were shouted at to pick faster. They didn't hit targets or made mistakes. They said they'd be forced to take unpaid time off. One worker was pushed to the ground by a supervisor when the wheel of a van he was driving got stuck in the mud, a worker said. Haygrove said it has not found any evidence of shouting intimidation or discrimination by its supervisors and that water was always provided and said that farm picking targets are not used to punish but to identify high performers who could be offered additional hours. So uh, we looked into ourselves and we found that we're great. But, you know, again, this... Yeah, not, this even, not even innocent, not even no wrongdoing, but actually, you know, we're, we're proactively good at this stuff. I mean, the punishment thing is so common across farms, something we found in, in, in our other reporting, the way most farms, one of, one of the standards ways farms will punish people for not picking fast enough, for sometimes for speaking while picking, sometimes for uh, having a phone while you're on the field, the way they punish you is by forcing you to take unpaid time off. So if you're set to work the next day, they will cancel that shift for the next, for the next day. And you, you can't work. And if you can't work, you can't earn. And, you know, a lot of these people are coming with debts. So they need to earn in order to pay off their debts. Uh, a lot of people are coming here still supporting family back home. So they need to earn in order to support their families back home. Let's remember that these farms will charge you for accommodation, will charge you for electricity, will charge you for gas, for washing, for all of these things. Um, and obviously, in this case, also charge you for the flights. So it's really important to be able to earn, but that's how they punish you. And this is, you know, we, found, we found this in our previous reporting an incredibly common practice. It is one of the main forms of disciplining workers uh, in these farms. It's it's all the stuff, it's all the like punishment stuff from a zero hours contract without any of the fig leaf that you would have over it in like a lot of other jobs where it's like, oh, it gives you, you know, like flexibility or whatever, you know, or it's just like yeah. nakedly. Yeah. And initially the scheme had a physio hours contracts. And over time there's been, and this goes to your question about reform, over time mm -hmm. there's been a reform. So they got rid of zero hours contracts. And then this year they instituted a new rule, which was that Farms have to guarantee 32-hour minimum contracts, have to guarantee at least 32 hours. But what happens? There's also there's always a way around that. So in the case of the workers that came from, from Chile and Bolivia and Peru, they arrived and they weren't actually put to work for, in, in the case of Julia, one of the people we cite, you know, about a week and a half before she actually got into work. So that week and a half, she was not being guaranteed those 32 hours. So what they do is they just make you start later and the guarantee will start later, but she still has costs to cover when she gets here and she's not being given any work. The other way they farms might get around that is by firing you. They'll simply fire you and then you got to find a work in another farm. So again, that 32 hours doesn't apply then, mm -hmm. right? So they, they, with every rule, with every new, so let's say like reform of the scheme, there's a loophole to get around the scheme and get, to get around the rule. Every day I feel more and more like Lenin, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, like ultimately, right, the reason that there's no reform of the scheme possible is that it exists inside the hostile environment, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, and that never went away. Is that yeah. any, scheme, any scheme that ties your continued existence in the country to your employment with a specific employer, you're going to be exploitable. And there are some employers that you know, are going to be less likely to hyper-exploit simply because they are hiring people who aren't... Um, who aren't basically uh, like racialized? They're hiring people who aren't necessarily vulnerable. Maybe they're hiring graduates, right? And that, and then those people are yes, they get to, they see the a very sort of cozy side of the UK immigration system, oh, cozy such as it is. Um, 
and but that the hostile environment really is for people who are being yelled at, I am a pure-blooded English woman and you will go back to your poor country, right? That is who the hostile environment is supposed to attack, uh, who it's hostile to. And it is only because of that hostile environment that these kinds of outrageous behaviors are enabled. But also, you know, we can think like, okay, well, what's, we can ask what will labor do as a kind of, um, as which should be because it's being treated as a government in waiting by most sort of the press and political commentators, right? What will labor do? Uh, as far as I can tell, they haven't said much. Um, but I also do know that, you know, what Starmer, who's Starmer giving speeches to? He's giving speeches to the National Farm Union, right? He's, he's talking about how because he grew up on the border of Surrey and Kent, or between Surrey and Kent, that he has the, 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 um, uh, countryside in his DNA. The disputed border area between Surrey and Kent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the hostile environment thing is key, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. so many of the workers in these reports also, again, in the Home Office, this is what the workers told the Home Office, is that they were being threatened to be sent back home if, for example, they didn't hit targets, right? So there's like a cutout we have in our, in our story. We, we, we kind of did little cutouts of bits of the, of the report so people could see for themselves what, what was clearly written down in these reports. And there's a worker from Nepal who had paid £6,000 in recruitment fees to come to the UK and work on this scheme. Um, he, he said that, uh, you know, he was very stressed by the targets. Um, you know, and again, he said that thing that, you know, if he doesn't pick fast enough, he'll be forced to take days off. And he said as well that he'd been threatened to be sent to Nepal if he got four written warnings uh, for not meeting picking speeds. Mm. Uh, and, and there were other instances of this throughout the report of people being threatened if you don't pick fast enough you will be sent back. So, you know, the, the hostile environment plays a key role in, again, in the system of disciplining these workers to make them hit targets, to, to make sure that they don't speak out. Um, you know, there's obviously, the, 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 to, for example, to make sure that they don't go on strike because that the threat was, we'll revoke your visa. Um, you know, it's key there. And, and, you know, another element of the hostile environment, which I think we don't talk about enough, is this issue of non, no recourse to public funds, right? Which effectively means that on a lot of visa types, if you end up unemployed, if you end up having any issue, you don't have the right to get state support, right? You don't have the right to benefits. So one of the big problems of this scheme is that, as I mentioned earlier, people will come, come expecting six months of work, they'll be fired quite quickly, and then will be left without work and without earnings and with no way to pay back their debts. And... Uh, because they have no recourse to public funds, they can't get any state support to survive. Uh, and because there are rules in this scheme, for example, that you should be transferred to other farms if the, farm, if the work run, dries up in your farm, but that rule is not being adhered to, um, workers have no guarantee of income. So many workers coming here expecting six months of work, don't get six months of work, don't get transferred to other farms to get work when work runs out, and then do not get any uh, state support when they're left destitute and people are being left destitute without the state support that I or others would be entitled to because we're in different kinds of visas um, or immigration status. That's like a key, po- a key part of this whole, of this whole hostile environment thing. Um, these workers are put in a position of being as vulnerable as possible through the hostile environment. It just strikes me that apart from anything else, apart from the like moral outrage of this, it's just like, even it's, it's self-sabotaging on its own terms that like, if we need these people to do agricultural labor to like, you know, have, crops picked, then regularly tricking and exploiting them and then just assuming that's like a bottomless resource. It's just like, it's stupid, apart from anything else, surely. I mean, that's, I think, you know, you mentioned last time as well, how I'd mentioned in one of the, one of the articles that one of the farms that we were covering said that, yeah, we had one British person work here 
as a picker that was back in 2017 and they quit after a day. Mm. The whole system and farms readily admit this. In fact, as part of their lobbying, like the whole agriculture system will collapse uh, without these workers, without these migrant workers. That's why the visa also was expanded to 55,000 a year. What happens now is, and this is just a kind of general observation, is that recruiters go to a country, they cause a mess, and then they'll go on to the next country and recruit from there the next year, right? So this was the first year that they were recruiting from Latin America in any kind of scale, right? We'll see if they continue to do so next year because obviously these workers went on strike. Mm -hmm. And well, that's they might thing, want to have we, more. When, when we last spoke to you, we, we, we sort of, the three of, we all talked about this and we said, there's no way they could keep recruiting from, for example, South Asia, right? And then lo and behold, they had to move to South America. The thing we said would happen, happened. And now yeah. it's going to happen again. It's quite likely, right? Because they stopped, because there were all these problems with recruitment fees in Indonesia, they stopped recruiting from Indonesia. They almost completely stopped recruiting from Nepal. There's very little recruitment from Nepal, also because there was this issue of recruitment fees. Uh, and so, yeah, they just keep on finding other borders. I mean, I, I guess maybe eventually they'll run out of countries. When we last spoke, it was Ukraine and Nepal were the countries they were recruiting from. And it seems like, yeah, they, they have had to go elsewhere and they will have to go elsewhere again. And, and before we sort of wrap up as well, I want to sort of pull it back to a look at the broader macro picture here, right? Which is that the UK farm agricultural industry is only sustainable if it has cheap, hyper exploitable labor. That cheap, hyper exploitable labor is uh, not keen to be hyper exploited. And so the UK farm industry can basically go to each region once. And at the same time, what does that look like? What that looks like is pulling the like snake oil wagon into town, you know? Yeah. But what that looks like for on the other end, for people buying food, that looks like relatively cheap prices compared to what they could be, which means if workers weren't hyper exploited, the cost of living would presumably go up, which means wages would have to rise. And so effectively, hyper exploitation is not and cheap food is not just um, it's not just food policy. It's also uh, social management policy. It's also wage suppression policy. It's also, um, you know, it, it allows for, you know, the the wage to be so low because then food is cheap, then so social reproduction can continue. It's basically taking that contradiction of needing to have these like low wages, but with otherwise expensive to expensive cost of living, and it forces that contradiction onto other people elsewhere in the world by bringing them here and then treating them badly and then throwing them away. That is what the effect of that is. That is how that is how that puzzle piece fits into the larger puzzle of the UK's economy and social reproduction machine. And it won't work. And I should say, this is not the UK is not unique. I don't want to kind of excuse places like Spain, Italy, Greece, where this sort of exploits there's also humongous levels of exploitation of agricultural workers. I think what makes the UK unique is that this is a, a visa specifically for this. And the government's completely involved all the way through, but tries to look the other way. Um, mm. So I think that's what makes the, the situation here quite unique. Um, so yeah. I think that's probably all we have time for today. But Emiliano, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you, though, about a very grim subject. I'm, I'm glad to be your grimness, or one of your many grimness correspondents. Thank you for Absolutely. having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. And also thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to this free episode. Sorry if you're listening to it on the day it comes out. It's a little late. We had to coordinate with various calendars, but I think we can all agree it was worth it. Um, and to remind you that 
after you've donated to Medical Aid for Palestinians, which is, of course, going to be linked in the description, there is our Patreon for a second episode every week. This episode, this bonus episode this week has already been recorded, and I wasn't on it because I was on holiday. So I I can't speak for you. Yeah. So if you (laughs) want to hear... I think it was fine. Thanks so much. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we will be seeing you in a couple days on the bonus, or otherwise see you next week on the free. Once again, Emiliano, Bureau of Investigative Journalism, thanks for joining us, and we will see all of you soon. Bye. 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 Thank you.